This podcast is brought to you by Eventide, makers of the legendary Harmonizer. Their new H9000 is the culmination of almost 50 years of audio innovation. To learn more about their award-winning effects processors and plugins, visit eventideaudio.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. In 2011, an artist by the name of Gautier rose to international prominence on the back of his song, Somebody That I Used To Know, from his third album, Making Mirrors. Wouter, Wally, Debacker, is Gautier, and it turns out he's far more than a global pop star. Belgian-born and Australia-raised, he now resides in the New York area, where he can work on his many passions. An interest in the French proto-synthesizer, the Andioline, and its most famous player, Jean-Jacques Perry, led to meeting Jean-Jacques, archiving his music, releasing a record of rare works, and restoring several vintage Andiolines, as well as performing live with the Andioline Orchestra. Wally continues to record and perform with The Basics, a rock trio he's had with friends since 2002, and is currently working on a new Gautier record. He's a busy man, and one whose energy is positive and infectious. Enjoy. This audio recording was not originally tracked with the intent of using for a podcast. It was recorded solely for transcription for our print interview. Please forgive any balance issues, background sounds, or lack of clarity. Enjoy. Yeah, thank thing. you so much. Thanks, man. Aaron. Awesome. Hey. This is great. Yeah, nice I'm to meet so you. Excited. After a lot of, uh, oh my god, a lot of fandom over the years. Well, I, I mean, we were in tape up for a while. Thank you. Yeah. Oh my god, were you getting it when you were in Australia? Were you getting picked? Yeah, picked was I? Because we had Mix Masters distributing it down there for years. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I did get physical copies over there. Yeah, but yeah. I, I've got a digital subscription too. So Excellent. that's, that's you how you get that anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> Um, so I, the idea is I wanted to talk about the Angeline, of course, but also just sort of your life as a recording musician, mm. because I think this seems very intertwined with you as a writer and, and everything. Sure. Yeah. So skipping way back really fast, what were your first recording experiences, like recording yourself, I assume? And yeah, I've, ca- you- I've ca- had cassettes. Shame I don't. I have them anymore, but yeah. I remember me and my best friend at like age five or six, like recording bits and pieces. No, I would right. record Sesame Street off the television, putting my little boombox in front, you know, with the microphone in front yeah. of the speaker yeah. and recording skits, <laughs> Sk- uh, skits that I really loved the most. So I had bits of, yeah, I had bits of Bert and Ernie on cassette. I, I wish I still had those cassettes. So to be that maybe intercut with me and my friend Jared, um, like making little radio dramas. Yes. Yeah. yeah. There was a little bit of that. That's funny. I mustn't have done enough of it that there's enough of a collection that survived. <laughs> but then it yeah, skips through to um, from becoming a, a pop fan just by listening to video video shows and radio mm-hmm. through my you know, 10, 11, 12, uh, harassing my parents to get me a drum kit and then starting to really like, you know, obsessively play drums once right. I had my first kit, um, then going to local studios with my first band in high school. And that was, really? that was the next recording experience. Yeah. What was that like? What was your first studio experience like? The first song we recorded, so my band was called Downstairs. Right. And now you actually, we did something through a school program because I'm skipping ahead. Yeah. There yeah. was a, 
there's a thing we went to a studio in Collingwood in Victoria, Australia. So it's just outside of Melbourne in a city suburb. We recorded four songs. One of them I'd recorded at home using just MIDI instruments on a on a creative sound blaster sound card. So I remember that's the first time yeah. I was kind of like, oh, you can you, you can get string sounds and bongos in the computer right. okay. and with a little right. keyboard. Um, so I made that, and then then the tracks we recorded as a band, like one of them is kind of like a sort of like a metal thing it sounded maybe a bit bit like tool at least what i thought tool sounded like <clears throat> so i don't know i was like coming home from school playing along with Stuart copeland on the drums just loving yeah. the police you know yeah, i mean yeah. loving their music but loving his drumming especially in that band yeah loving the beatles since i was a kid getting on the piano trying to sort of reverse engineer beatles songs <laughs> somehow probably drawn to metal because of the technical mathematical side of it as a drummer like starting yeah. to work out limb independence and being fascinated by interlocking rhythms and polyrhythm and um and yeah and so yeah local studios school programs and then a few local studios around melbourne australia in the suburbs that had cheap rates that would come with an yeah. engineer so a lot of recording on adat at the time oh my god right yeah. well how did 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 you Besides the MIDI stuff, were you doing any kind of recording, like four-track cassette or stuff then, too? No, I never had tape stuff at home. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was various kind of retrospectively kind of shitty-sounding digital things. Like, yeah, <laughs> ADAT, another track downstairs recorded was on DAT. I had a groove box yeah. from Roland. I was doing a bit of program. So the mm -hmm. first programming I ever did was on a groove box, and I'd take that into the studio, maybe downstairs track. We'd put that down as a as like a backing. Maybe oh, right. It might have been percussive parts and synths and other things, and then we might play, you know, the band parts along with that. Yeah. Um, so there was one session we did that, I remember. So um, that's kind of, I mean, even a, a high school band doing a number of studio sessions is kind of unusual to some degree, isn't it? I guess so. What I perceived <laughs> is that um, I was usually, um, I was some, it wasn't at odds, but I was definitely could tell that I was doing something a bit different than what a lot of high school bands were doing, which is let's go in and record all 10 of our songs, yeah. you know, punk style, just do it in that 10. I'd come in going, well, we want to do this one song. I don't know if today is going to be enough, but that's all the money I have. So we just right. got to get it right today. Right. And, you know, a local engineer would be like, well, wow, so you've got, you got sequences here and there's this synth and what are you doing? You want to trigger this snare drum sound? And <laughs> you want to use this flanger I've got? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So you would get to the end of the day, we'd be barely tracked or ready to mix something. So I guess I was probably being ambitious. I was listening to a lot yeah. of Depeche Mode records. So I was kind Sure. Like, that was my blueprint of like what a record could sound like which um, weren't easy for them to make <laughs> they weren't <laughs> doing it they weren't now. doing it in a day <laughs> <laughs> they weren't doing it in a day <laughs> so yeah but i think as a teenager i was a bit oblivious to like that you maybe couldn't make a reasonably elaborate you know half synth sequenced band production in right. a day with an engineer who didn't know what you were aiming to do just walk in there in the morning <laughs> did tried that a number of times with downstairs to you know to varying levels of success yeah some of, some of the songs have some things to recommend them others are desperately embarrassing right <laughs> well we all learned somewhere right <laughs> yeah did you um did you start be putting stuff together more to work at home it's pretty much when, yeah, finishing high school because uh, the four of us guys in the band were, you know, going different directions life-wise, mm -hmm. um, mainly because our bass player, Lucas, um, got an opportunity to join like a traveling show. I think it was a traveling production of Greece. So no he, he was offered the, the bass chair in that traveling production of Greece. It's like, you're going to get to travel all around Australia and do hundreds of shows and you'll be, you'll be a pro bass player. And he's only yeah. 19, I guess. So he yeah, was like, sure. guys, I've got to go do this. <laughs> and we were like, well, that's the end of the band pretty much because we're doing <laughs> local gigs and I'm planning recording sessions and writing things. I'm like, well, we're not yeah. going to replace Lucas. So that, I think, just naturally made me go towards should I try to record things myself. Mm -hmm. I got a PC based system together. Um, a guy I knew through a friend called Hugh. Yeah, my girlfriend at the time um, 
worked in a local promotions organization called Frog in a Blender. So they'd put on a few down, they'd put on a few shows that downstairs had played on. Yeah. And she introduced me to another musician who was also part of the Frog in a Blender collection called Hugh. Uh, and Hugh was doing a lot of recording at home. Um, like me, big fan of Nine Inch Nails and a lot of elaborate industrial yeah. type record production processes. So he gave me a bunch of um, kind of just pirating tips, basically like, let me give you this CD. I'll burn you with all this software and these plugins. <laughs> right. So I got, um, yeah, I got plenty of pirated software to start off okay. on this cheap PC yeah. and started um, what were going to be, I guess, downstairs tracks. I just started trying to track them as demos myself or thinking I should just produce these myself. Maybe maybe mm-hmm. I can at home. You know, if I have the tools, then maybe I can do it for, you know, for free. Right, right. Yeah. So that was a little interim period before maybe... I was starting to sample records um, mm. that became the first Gautier record after a few years. Right. I was still trying to track live instruments at home on a pretty simple setup with just two channels of pre yeah. wow. um, of an interface, yeah. uh, tracks that were written for downstairs. And those those never, I don't know, I, I kind of have bounced out versions of them somewhere. Nice. They're existing somewhere on an old hard drive. <laughs> yeah, But then somewere along the way there, I guess, because yeah. I was starting to listen to more, I was already really into things like Porter's Head and Massive Attack, sure. but listening to more things like that, the Bristol scene, listening to DJ Shadow and Cut Chemist a lot more. Yeah. Um, my friend Andy Hutchinson said, dude, you should sample records. Let's go get records. So we'd go to the thrift right. shop and dig and bring back records. And yeah, it was probably, I, I do recall um, me and him just hanging out in my bedroom uh, at the bottom of the house we were sharing. Um, he wasn't sharing it with me, but he'd come over a yeah. lot and we'd gone to the thrift shop, got a few records and just sitting downstairs uh, and a neighbor had given me this whole stack of records. That, um, right. There's some story about a neighbor's yeah, yeah. wife passing away, maybe. Yeah. And, and, and he, he gave me all these records. What and kind of music? Some of them were pop compilations from through the 80s that would yeah. feature anything from, you know, um, <laughs> uh, Agadoo to Crowded House to right. Total Eclipse of a Heart, all sorts of pretty, pretty <laughs> eclectic compilations, just, you know, the hits of a day, the sure. equivalent of that's what I call music now or something right. like that. Oh, I know those. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there were, well, there was the Reddings. You know, you know an R&B band called The Reddings? Reddings. Yeah, they were like an electro-funk R&B band who, from what I can tell, had a decent amount of success in the 80s. Where were they from? They were, I think they were, some of them were nephews of Otis Redding. Oh, um, okay. I don't know where they were based. They had a record called If Looks Could Kill, which opened with a track called In My Pants. <laughs> and I think that's the thing that started me and Andy off, like going, can we sample this and turn it into a track? Interesting. Still love that song, In My Pants by the Reddings. In My Pants. That's some sampling inspiration for you. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, I remember this session, like, listening to In My Pants, just, like, <laughs> losing our shit, just going, this is absurd. We've got to sample this and do something with it. And I think then maybe my, I don't know, aspirations to, like, oh, I wonder if I can make records that sound like Depeche Mode or, like, Massive Attack with this right. process. That got me very deeply into, like, what else can I find in thrift shops and what else can I chop into bits and, and make right. into whole tracks. And I think what it felt like to me was that I'd probably hit a point where trying to turn those downstairs tracks into finished productions myself, I was really feeling the lack of ability, knowledge, and just feeling like these aren't sounding, they're, they're not better than what I was able to do in these local studios with engineers' assistance. Right. But maybe because I had a few early successes cobbling samples together going, oh, this feels like a, I don't know, pragmatically it just felt like a bridge towards I could make finished tracks that sound really good, right. to, in my estimation anyway, or better than I was able to do when I was tracking instruments. So it, it right. kind of made me think, I should just stop tracking instruments other than maybe my voice. Right. (laughs) Because I can work with the level of gear that I can afford and sampling, apart from being a creative sort of inspiration, also just gets me over, I don't know, the hump of making a record I thought sounded good. Right. So, yeah, it was kind of a pragmatic thing. That's a cool, you you don't get many people admitting that that's a way of, a path forward. I don't know. I think I I pretty, pretty quickly realized that 
you just have a different set of rules and limitations, which mm-hmm. is, you know, well, you can take something, it, it may be, yeah, it may be circumvents some of the things that feels like barriers to entry, you know, the cost of recording the studio, the engineering expertise to try to make a drum sound really good. Right. Um, and I don't think it means it's a cheat. I mean, it, I just think it just means <laughs> no. it might make those things easier, but it offers different possibilities, obviously. Of, you mm-hmm. know, obviously there's records you can't yeah. make without sampling. There's records you can't make without really having humans play in a room. Absolutely. So there's I think I... There's ways to make a record. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think I both saw the pragmatic side of it, but also thought um, I liked the limitations, like yeah. realizing that there's only so... Well, actually, it's not true, because the first thing I was doing is like, how far can I pitch shift things and they actually have musical end results that I find interesting? <laughs> yeah, right. so I was doing a lot of pitch shifting things down an octave or more, right. probably because of the trip-hop stuff I was listening to. Certainly. Yeah, yeah you can massive attack, especially. Yeah, those it's, kind there's of manipulations. a lot of screw tempo kind of right. sample manipulations. Well, and the other thing, too, is like, like listen to a DJ Shadow record and you're like, some sources you might be able to eventually identify, maybe like yeah. the acapellas and stuff. But, but others, but other things, he's, n- he's nitpicking a little tiny thing and manipulating it. It's like, yeah, you know, where did that come from? You'll never know. Yeah, he might, he might not know either. <laughs> he might have forgotten. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know that's certainly the case for me. Yeah, especially if I was looking into little snippets and being like. I don't know where that snare drum came from. Yeah. But I, I think I manipulated it enough that if I don't recognize it, that that's fine. That's, that's, yeah, it's just gone, it's come from somewhere else at that yeah. point. That's amazing. Yeah. What, what uh, um, as you moved along, did things become just completely more like your own project then? Or were you, were you working with others? Yeah, I think I, I conceived uh, GoChair as a project. So, I mean, I was working mm-hmm. by myself in my bedroom for years, yeah. cobbling together about 20 tracks from which I selected the, I'm forgetting now, 12, 13 that are on Boardface, the first Mm -hmm. album I put out. But I was already collecting them in little um, compilations, like five tracks at a time, making homemade demos, which I'd draw the artwork on myself. Right, I've heard about that. Do a lot of coloring in (laughs) and burn the CDs myself and then send them to radio stations. Mainly to radio stations, really, just thinking, I'll just do this independently. I don't need, (laughs) I'm not looking for a manager. You seem to have a a real tenacity early on too, though, for like at least trying to get your music around and get people to hopefully hear it. it might have been a reaction to, I think, downstairs once. Well, we did a few battles of the bands. Mm-hmm. We even won one that I can remember. <laughs> we entered an, uh, a radio-based battle of the bands with a very pop radio station in Melbourne. And I remember getting a call from which is like they had listeners vote on like a 20-second snippet of three songs. Oh and our song got the listeners' vote. And they're like, we're going to be in touch with downstairs soon about their prize. And then I never heard from them. It was like, <laughs> what a bogus thing. I think That's that amazing. I think that combined with the feeling that it was also good. Uh, it was yeah. As a friend of mine, Marty Williams, when I moved down southeast to Melbourne, who who I think just said to me very directly, you don't you don't need a label, you know. You right. could just you can make, if you can make your own records, you can distribute them. Maybe you just need a distributor, but you can do your yeah. own promotion. So I think that just started me thinking about maybe if you work just as hard on the kind of. I don't know, self-distribution side of as you work making tracks, then that's, that's what right. you need to do for people to hear, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I, at times I kind of felt like I was a bit, I don't know how resistant I was to the feeling that that's what you had to do, but at some at some point I must have just said, that's just how it is, and so that's what I'm going to do because I want people to hear what I'm working on. Right. I don't just want to say, oh, well, no one was interested and <laughs> it didn't fit the label, you know, kind of what a label's looking for, so that means I mustn't be good enough or what I'm doing doesn't make sense right now. I was kind of, no, I kind of knew a lot of the times. I think I liked I liked the aspect of being hands on with everything, feeling yeah. like um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I would, I loved records. I loved the physical object of records. I loved the experience of entering, you know, like the being portals to other worlds. Yeah. And I felt like very connected to that with you'd made music that you were also then making the portal in a way that you might give to someone else. And it's like, if that could be very direct. Yeah. I remember a fan coming to my door, actually just knocking on the door because I'd given her my address <laughs> at a gig and she dropped around and bought a, a homemade CD from me. <laughs> oh and I liked, I liked that. <laughs> <laughs> direct connection. Yeah. And the artwork too seems to be something that you kind of like think more about than maybe some artists, how it's presented. Yeah, um, it's been lucky I think that there's a bunch of art that's been around the family from mm-hmm. things my dad was doing or right. things I'd done as a kid that my mum had kept in a folder that I could um, take a you know sort of sampling approach to and say, oh, I could, <laughs> I could, you, this feels like what I want this art to be, and right. keeping it in the family is a nice feeling. So with yeah. the first record, that eventually did attract more attention, right? At least in but Australia. My, if, if I remember correctly, um, releasing it commercially was the result of having a little bit of interest from a distributor named Creative Vibes. They put mm-hmm. one of the tracks that I'd put out on these homemade collections of, you know, VPs at the time. Um, they wanted to put one of those tracks on uh, one of their compilations showing new Australian music called um, Evolutionary Vibes. They suggested that I could get a better mix of a song, and I was interested but also resistant. But I went to Sydney. They, put, they paired me with an in-house engineer they worked with, Jimbo. Jimbo and I sort of did a remix of a song. And so that's a version I don't even have on a hard drive anywhere. But the version mm-hmm. of that song uh, that ended up on Evolutionary Vibes is this new mix. And I sort of thought there were good things about it, but also things I didn't like. I still sort of thought like that my, admittedly, a probably more lo-fi version of the mix still felt truer to what I was trying to do. Yeah. So, yeah, that mix that Jimbo did on Evolutionary Vibes kind of just has, I don't know, gone wherever it has gone. <laughs> um, but that was maybe the first experience I had of, like, I do want to try to articulate the music I'm making to the best possible ability. I don't right. want to just say I'm only going to make it myself or make it willfully lo-fi for its <laughs> own sake. No, I right. want to make records that sound great. Um, yeah. So I was exploring the possibility of maybe I can meet people who could help me do that. But I think I came to the conclusion that that experience with that song and that compilation was like, well, good people, we tried, but I don't think that it made my song better. So maybe I should just stick with my own mixes, um, Mm -hmm. stick with releasing the record myself and Creative Vibe said they were happy to be the distributor for that. So I just collected selections from those 20 odd tracks. And in 2003, um, yeah, pressed up the CDs myself, sent off (laughs) 500 of them to Creative Vibes (laughs) and they got them into stores. Yeah. And I had a little bit of airplay on this Australian radio station called Triple J, mm-hmm. um, who'd already played things on a few key shows where they would play new oh, music cool. and demos, yeah. and I'd been sending it to presenters directly. But where I felt I got to maybe like a year or a year and a half after that was I'd put together a 12-piece band to play songs off this album, Bloodface, wow. at about three different locations around Melbourne. Obviously, I couldn't pay anybody at any stage. It was all pure <laughs> favours, just like they liked the homemade CDs I'd given them. They were prepared to rehearse for hours. Oh, man. Navigate these odd arrangements of me trying to... Those like, are good friends. Yeah. So um, <laughs> so we did a few shows, but I think I felt like I got to a natural end point where I said, oh, I guess this is the end of well, what you might call an album cycle. I wouldn't have called it that, but kind of like, well, I, I made an album over a number of years. I put it out myself. Got a little bit of radio airplay, seemingly more than a lot of even friends have achieved on community stations or other places. So I, I seem to have been pretty lucky and there's been some good reception. And yeah. um, I've done a few shows, and, you know, not lost a crazy amount of money, but still, you know, not, never made any money. Yeah. And just kind of felt like I got to a point where I said, oh, I guess is this is this what it is? This is the reality of if I'm being totally independent making this music in Australia, that's what it is. I could get a few spins on a, on a nationally broadcast indie radio station 
I have a distributor, but I can't sell more than 300 CDs. Right. Um, that's that's maybe that's what, and I think I did kind of ask myself consciously: is that do I want to keep doing that if that's the yeah. scale of what it is? And I think, I think the thing that it, for me felt like uh, the possible question of whether I wanted to keep doing it was just that, like I didn't even make enough money to buy a new computer to get a better sound card. And I was like, <laughs> I wish yeah. to. So I guess I was questioning like, what is success? Like, is mm-hmm. that? Um, I was enjoying all the independent aspects of you know of being very hands on in every aspect of putting the music out. But I had a point where I think I thought, do I want to keep doing that? Because it's a huge amount of work and energy and effort um, for maybe only, not dwindling returns, but you know, I can't even buy a new computer. Just right. that feeling. Right. So I borrowed some money off my parents to buy a new computer, started using a <laughs> Mac, started using Ableton for the first time. That was part oh, yeah. of the process of making my second record. And the whole time I was also um, doing a lot of live shows with my other band, The Basics. So that was right. that was more than half of my time was we were traveling around Australia, booking our own tours. Um, and that's doing more, a, more of like a rock band, yeah, right? Three-piece rock and yeah. roll band, yeah. yeah. We were playing beer barns, doing covers, were you doing playing originals. Drums? Yeah, drums and singing. Oh, fun. Yeah. So you can get back to your original instrument. Yeah, that. I yeah. hadn't played live for like two years. So when I met Chris Schroeder, I formed the Basics with, um, that was really welcome. That was like, oh, yeah. I miss playing the drums. I'd, yeah. I have enjoyed this, what felt like a detour for me at the time, of just sitting on computers and sampling records and feeling like right. there was this magical world in thrift shops of this whole <laughs> world of sound I didn't know existed that I could sort of play with. But yeah. at the same time, it was really exciting to just go and play drums and, and sing, right. and cover the Beatles and, and write our own songs in the style of the... It's pretty much what we wanted to do. It's like yeah. write songs in the style of the early Beatles albums. So nice. that's what the basics <laughs> did early on. Um, so yeah, that was kind of... I was spending any spare time outside of a cafe or library jobs that I had at that time. Yeah. <laughs> We'd be doing shows. I'd be in my bedroom making more tracks. Yeah. And so yeah. I got to a similar point, I think, before I put my second record out independently in Australia of thinking, is this what it is? Like, if I do this, I have some sense of that's probably what the parameters of things will be. Maybe I'll sell a few hundred copies. Maybe I'll even get a little bit of radio airplay, which isn't easy to get yeah. independently. But then that's the point at which things seem to sort of flip more, where it was like things yeah. went beyond my expectations. And it yeah. seems to have been since then that that's generally been what I've experienced, which I've been feel very, very, very I mean, blessed. It seems crazy, yeah. right? I mean, the amount of success that that basically that one song did. Yeah, for better or worse. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I, I think I see the good things about it. I probably wouldn't yeah. be able to do these projects. Yeah, I know right. I wouldn't be able to do these projects sure, if it wasn't sure. for the success of that song. So. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, my production partner Frank was kind of um, mm-hmm. for some context. He was talking about this to a friend the other day, and I'd kind of forgotten is, um, like I said, I had that experience of doing that single mix with this guy, that guy Jimbo in Sydney, mm-hmm. which I didn't feel was. And I, then I did try to work with some other mix engineers mm-hmm. on my second record, like Drawing Blood, but realised that it wasn't resulting in. I thought wasn't resulting in a process that I enjoyed. I found it. I think I worked with a few people where there was a definite aspect of ego and seniority where it didn't feel like we were actually talking about the music. We were talking about, let me make this decision. You don't know how much reverb this sound's meant to have. Yeah. As, and then me feeling like uh, that I didn't meet somebody I wanted to really work with who I thought was going to make my tracks more more clearly articulated mm-hmm. but also would be prepared to let me, in, in the end, call the shots about when it was right. right. Then I met Francois Titas on the suggestion of some of the people around that Creative Vibes label. And right. they said, I think, you know, um, they said, we think you you guys are coming from a similar place. Well, you'll enjoy the way he works and because he's such an open guy and he's got such an incredibly broad perspective on, on music history and on modes sometimes of producing records. And sometimes yeah. that's really important to yeah. know a lot of different styles and how they were created and everything. Yeah. 
So I met Frank, we did a few tracks and I loved the experience and thought that uh, was, it was uh, everything I'd hoped working with a mixer could be, like mm -hmm. making things sound better, clearer, yeah. still finding the sort of soul of what might have been a demo level production I'd put together. Um, and yeah, but, but sort of managing to take those tracks further. So yeah, that was sort of, that was, um, but the reason I bring it up is because Frank said the other day when I came to him with uh, the tracks from like Drawing Blood at maybe mixed to a level that maybe say Boardface was mixed to, which is like, mm -hmm. this is me doing the best I can bouncing out my tracks out of uh, Sonic Foundry Acid. Yeah. Um, and that's mixing a song for me. That's the best I can make it sound. I don't have a separate software option or a separate <laughs> hat to put on as like, this is the best I can do automating all the effects I've chosen and then all the kind of, you know, arrangement things I've decided and that's my mix. And I guess I went to him saying, do you think you could make this better yeah. and he listened to it and said um he remembers playing it to a number of people at labels thinking there's something in this and he wanted to work on my tracks but right. i could only afford to maybe do one mix with him and then i'd have to save up working at the cafe or the library for three months to mix one more song because oh, for me like a thousand dollars which i think he charged me a super cut rate for him at the time yeah thousand dollars was a huge amount of money to spend on one mix right sure so i was just doing it in dribs and drabs with frank and he just recalled the other day that he'd played things to other people and didn't necessarily get the kind of not that he was expecting people to go like oh my god this is amazing but he had a lot of responses from people that suggested they you know like oh this is cool but this will never work this doesn't have any place who's going to play this in australia <laughs> doesn't make sense <laughs> and that was interesting for me to think about because that yeah. what it, i think about it because it connects with like the aspect of being hands-on of just going well if i think i've got something has some merit at least something to me right um sometimes you just have to stick with it long enough until some people get to hear it and various <laughs> gatekeepers along the way will have said i don't understand where this fits this doesn't fit anywhere so it doesn't make sense for me to work on it it's not yeah. going to work but it can work there's a lot of if you just stick with it and there's a lot of classic records that we've been that have the same story yeah the same background you know like that's no one wants to hear this no one wants to hear that and then boom yeah you know so yeah you're in good company <laughs> did did um to you, um, do you, do you feel that having someone like having his perspective and helping you mix it gave it um, a little commercial leg up too? I like think more so. More appealing to a broader audience, just sonically. I think so. I yeah. think there's um. I mean, if you listen to my rough mixes, it's not like you'd say, "Oh my god, this is a completely different song." <laughs> but I think it's a lot about articulation and context. So yeah. whether you, well, as you know, you know the challenge of. How, how do you tell the story of this piece of music, this collection of frequencies, this collection of sonic ideas in the most engaging way so that it actually invites people, you know, that moment that yeah. you always hope which yeah. is like, what's this? Or I want to listen to this. I want to hear this person sing or I want to hear the story that, maybe that is in here. And sure. I feel like maybe to the level that I can mix things, there might be a bunch of music I've made over the years that wouldn't engage as many people because it might be in there somewhere, but, yeah. you know, but you have to listen into it and you have to really look for it. Whereas I think Frank's sure. great at bringing that articulation aspect. In. How much did things change? Was it, were, were, were any things retracted or manipulated massively? Not unlike Drawing Blood. No, like Drawing Blood was, yeah. I brought Frank, um, I would bounce things out of Sonic Foundry Acid dry and wet every channel. Mm -hmm. So just right. bring him stems. Sure. And then we'd look at, you know, whether it made sense to recreate a reverb as opposed to the one I was using in Acid. Or right. Is there a better way to distort this as opposed to... <laughs> mostly, though, he'd say, no, I love what you've done here with this fuzz on this vocal. Absolutely yeah. use this. I'm just going to EQ it like this. And sure. So, no, like Dr. Blood was purely him really just straight mixing mm. what I brought to him. Um, and there might have been one or two things. Like the, there's a the track, The Only Way, has like a roughly 30 hertz tone in it. And I pretty much came into Frank and said, oh, I really want this 
low sub whoop kind of thing with a long tail yeah. like this Beyonce track I think oh, totally. I said I mean, you hear that. And I, but I basically said to him I don't know how to make it could you make that sound for me yeah uh, it's great because he had the in his studio in Melbourne he had these massive Dumtech speakers so I do remember when we mixed that track and he helped create this bass tone that sort of underpins parts of that song hearing it on those Dumtechs was kind yeah. of amazing just this standing yeah. wave in the room <laughs> um, so yeah so there was I guess the tiniest bit of additional production sure. but I feel like what Frank brings to my project is is an additional production ear for mixing because yeah. he's often, you know, I'm cobbling these things together from really disparate sources. And so yeah. some of that is what is at the heart maybe of what is an appealing collection of textures and frequencies and gives the record a certain eclecticism, even frequency-wise, because it's come from a lot of different places right. already. But I think he's great, at, um, <clears throat> he's great at enhancing those things. And it's kind of, I feel like he's, it's one of the only people I've worked with who I feel can understand it to the point, spend enough time with it to feel... And it's through conversations with me as well to kind of go, what is Wally really trying to say with this? <laughs> I mean, he's trying to sort of a little bit guess, but yeah. getting to know me better as a person over the years, I think he has a feeling for what I'm, where I'm sort of reaching for but haven't got to yet sonically and then sort of take these things and, yeah, like Putty, just kind of tease it out yeah. but without breaking it. I think that's what he's always trying to do. It's like how far can we explode this yeah. without breaking it? Yeah, yeah. just changing, and, changing the presentation or, or perspective of it too yeah. can really ruin or enhance. It can, yeah. I've been amazed that at hearing quite possible mixes, you could say objectively are better than my rough mixes that I feel are absolutely not better pieces of music because mm -hmm. they don't tell the story in an engaging way or in right. a way that's even as engaging as maybe how lo-fi my rough mix might be. Yeah. <laughs> and that really fascinates me is that like the one step forward, two steps back thing when you yeah. get a perspective on a piece of music wrong. Have you kept working with Frank on mixes? Yeah, and stuff yeah we've been working on this new stuff. record for a good while. He's, yeah. um, he's really... <laughs> gone with me on a, this odyssey of this is, new record is following up that album how does that pressure feel that would be a very good production there's, in, there's internal pressure yeah uh, I think I have different moments where <clears throat> there's one aspect where leaving Australia leaving my relationship um, partly was something related to like the feeling of like I want more time or the possibility of being like in my early 20s where I can just dig I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to dig into record shops endlessly yeah. and just sample and sample and but then I'd already sort of set myself this kind of concept for this new record that is in progress which is actually going into very specific um, uh, sound worlds of people like Sean Jack Perry or Harry Chamberlain or things that are inspiring the songs and actually giving myself very rigorous limitations and not just sampling willy-nilly from whatever <laughs> I find. So I actually haven't been thrift shopping for records hardly at all yeah. since I've lived here. I think it actually overwhelmed me a little bit. I felt right. like <laughs> there was something probably over the years in Australia of feeling like, ah, oh, you can't find all the cool records in dollar bins here. It's all, <laughs> it's all light music. It's all schmaltz. But that is one of the things that contributed to my early records because I'd be like, well, I'll, I'll buy that Andy Williams record and see if there's a break on there. So... <laughs> It's different Sometimes. than everyone. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I don't know. Following up, I, I try not to think mm -hmm. about it. I just kind of yeah. felt like I came off tour after a number of years touring the last record and felt just like I, I want to make more music. I don't want to do the same thing I've done before. Yeah. So, I could make another broadly eclectic, generally sample based, maybe with a little bit of live performance, alternative pop record where the lyrics are mostly autobiographical or semi autobiographical. Um, but I've done that before, even though yeah. because of its eclecticism by nature, it'll be probably quite different Yeah. and yet the same to what I've done before. <laughs> I was kind of like, no, I need to challenge myself to do something that's really different. And so that's how I've arrived at this. 
Yeah. Yeah, the current album concept. And it's, I don't know, sometimes I wonder by giving myself those rules, does it mean that I'm actively stepping away from maybe what are just naturally the greatest strengths I have right. as a sampling songwriter, composer? And maybe that's not, is that a bad move to like <laughs> to try, be kind of actively ignoring the things that maybe I naturally just do that are engaging? That it seems audiences have told me, we like you doing this. But yeah. <laughs> I think I'm partly trying to sort of say, that's cool, but I'm going to see if I can make music that I think is really good that comes from things I'm passionate about that maybe are harder for me to realize that feel a bit like I don't think I could do this. Like I think this might fall really <laughs> flat on its face, but that's a good reason to try it. Well, I think so, you yeah. got to challenge yourself to stay interested. Yeah. I mean, maybe the worst thing you could do at this juncture would be trying to please an audience. Yeah. You know, or having too much of that thought in the back of your mind. Yeah. And you just have to follow your instincts. Yeah. You know? I mean, I certainly with, you know, some of the things I'm doing here with the Ondulian restoration and right. curating Jean-Jacques Perry's music and I mean, that's, that's coming purely from like, well, I just want to do this. Archiving too? Was there something else? In yeah, I'm working that? working on it. Yeah, I want to yeah. release a demonstration of um, Harry Chamberlain playing his Model 800 Riviera really? from the 70s, which snippets of which have been released, but um, it's yeah. never been issued in its entirety. So I've been, um, been working on restoring that because I've only, it's like what Michael was talking about today. I've dug and dug for a year and a half, got to know the family. Um, mm -hmm. We actually recorded some vocals to a tribute song to Harry that I've written in in their house in, yeah. in Upland, California. Um, I was hoping that as they started to give me reels and other things, and as I've spoken to the guys from Mellotron Archives, that I would find that earlier generation reel of that demonstration that would become this next Forgotten Futures release, but I, I've just had to go with the cassette. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> like, I think that's just, that's the best I'm going to get. Right, like sometimes so, you, you can only go so far back generation-wise on... Yeah, and maybe sometimes you can only wait so long before you feel like, well, this just this release <laughs> just won't happen yeah. um, unless I just restore this source. Right. Yeah, so I'm working on that at the moment. That's cool. Yeah. So the Andialine, I've, I've never even seen one in person until today, as far as I recall. Right. Um, there's not, how many other? Neither, neither had I until you bought one? three years ago. <laughs> yeah, first one I saw was in a museum in Calgary in Canada. Oh, so wow. It's kind of the thing that started me off on this record a little bit as I finished touring. And when I'd done a show in Calgary, a friend had invited me to the National Music Center. And mm -hmm. I just flipped out with their collection of synths and keyboards oh, and, wow. and early tube instruments. I was like, the second I'm off the road, I've got to come back here and spend a week. So that's yeah. what I did. I invited Nick Lornay to come and engineer. And nice. We'd never worked together, but I, I love his engineering, yeah. um, his production work. And so he, he just engineered and I'd just be jamming on these wild instruments for a week. And all <laughs> that stuff is currently up on the shelf. I got sort of 20, still think quite promising instrumentals that are very different than anything I've done with the Gorgia thing before because it's all just me playing and not yeah. getting bogged down into multi-sampling. It's just purely like, oh, this is a good sound. Oh, here's a hook. All right, let's record this. <laughs> pull That's another cool. instrument in and respond to it and just purely build yeah. jams out of responding to the instruments, which was a beautiful yeah. experience. That's but I couldn't awesome. find a way to turn it into what I thought was going to be a Gautier record, so I put it all on the shelf, but it actually gave me the feeling that like maybe it's like some, it's like pretty much everything I do, maybe in life, but in music, definitely the tic-tac-toe yeah. approach of like, <laughs> oh, I think oh, I've done this. Oh, maybe that's not it, but it's led me to this, which oh, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So it felt like having those instrumentals that I couldn't seem to turn into songs <clears throat> um, made me think, well, I love these instruments and I love the stories behind these instruments. I love how much more interested I am going really deep, digging into where these these strands of electronic music history came mm. from. Maybe that's the inspiration for the album. Maybe each song should be actively engaging with these people and their instruments and their stories rather than just, I don't know, I used a theremin because I thought it sounded cool, which is right. a perfectly valid reason to use a theremin. <laughs> but yeah. trying to say, what if I said I'm using a theremin for myriad other reasons that are very specific in mm. this song? about the man, for instance, wow. then hmm. those kind of frameworks to say, and that's 
yeah, of experience that's required in a lot of patients and traveling right. and digging and researching. And, Man. Yeah. So the Andialine must have caught, really caught your attention when you got to play it for the first time. Yeah. Well, it was tough because um, it wasn't tough. I, where did I play it first? So I saw it first in the National Music Center. Mm-hmm. It wasn't functional, so I couldn't really oh, use it. Okay. Then I ended up at Audities, also in Calgary, David Keane's studio, where yeah. he's got an incredible collection of things. Really? Um, you know, he's behind the Mellotron archives over the years. Oh, so okay. he's the guy that, you know, everyone knew him as the Mellotron guy for so mm-hmm. many years. Um, he's less involved in it now. But Audities has slowly, I think he's slowly donated or sold much of his incredible right. instrument collection. But I went and played some Onduline on a tribute song to Jean-Jacques Perry that I was putting together because mm-hmm. I, I sort of thought, well, where is, there seems to be one place in the world where there's a functional Onduline. <laughs> um, so I asked David if I could come spend a week and I spent some time there. But yeah, his Onduline is nice, but it's actually a little far for me to remember clearly, but it, it wasn't very well scaled, wasn't very well tuned. Mm-hmm. So I was having to play lines within maybe only a fifth before I'd be like, let's retune and do that a little bit as a separate pass now. Oh, let's man. retune. But that's what I've learned that's working with Stephen. That is, um, that's right. just the case with, yeah, unless you replace the whole resistor string on the instrument and then, you know, do multiple passes of the resistor capacitor um, calibrations that are required to tune each register. Um, right. You'll always have a really weirdly banana scaled ondulene <laughs> because all those components have <laughs> drifted in 50 years to, you know, all sorts of extents. So, yeah. Yeah. So his instrument was pretty. You know, it sounded okay, but um, mainly just just scaled really wildly. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So that's the first time I played one, and still was looking and looking, and certainly asking Dave Keen, like, you got any leads on on an ondulene where I could buy one? And he was like, no, I don't know anyone. But yeah, I'd left my details with you know shops in France and places I'd seen had sold them over the years, and and my favorite recollection is the guy from Instrumentec outside of Paris, in French, telling me, ah, the ondulene, it's very rare. <laughs> <laughs> so he took my details down, but I never heard from him. Yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but yes, it took a few years, and then finally I got this call from uh, Mitchell Manger from Antiquity Music in LA, mm-hmm. and he'd kind of shut up shop because he had a huge floor space for a while where he was really trying to make the business be his bread and butter, and he had all these incredible instruments like a yeah. Yamaha. He had a Yamaha EX42 in there, and um, all sorts of wild early electronic Carillion things. And, Baldwin electric, electric harpsichords and oh, great yeah. pedals and so and he had guys on staff like restoring and selling and he was doing a decent profit I think but just so expensive him to keep probably that floor space going eventually he said we're <laughs> going to get rid of all the inventory okay. um, but anyway but he's left his website up over the years and so oh, what obviously happened is somebody who had this ondulene in Connecticut went looking online who does vintage electronic instruments in America they called Mitchell and Mitchell knew that I'd been looking for years and yeah. he called me and said I think I've found your ondulene for you so that was that Jeez. instrument you heard today and the photos of it when you first got it were terrifying I had no idea because I, I didn't see anything he just basically said oh. the guy doesn't want you to be in touch with him directly he wants $2,000 take it or leave it I said I'll take it sure so it arrived in a box uh, I wouldn't even know how much it had been beaten up in because it badly it was just like in a cardboard box with hardly any packing oh no <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I mean it had been underwater yeah uh, as you can see from the photos, yeah, totally Steve rusted. Sitting in water over the amplifier. Yeah, over the speaker. Oh, you could tell because you could see the water line. On the like, speaker? Yeah. Oh, God. On the, on the cabinet inside. Um, and I took that to Steve. And it, this was one of these nice things of moving to New York where I just, as I was starting to meet people like uh, Brian Kehoe, Tom Ray, you know, Stephen's name kept coming up. They said, yeah. you've got to meet Stephen. You know, you've this, got is, to- this is Steve Masucci who's. Yeah foremost restoration expert for Moogs and, yeah. and old Helios consoles and things like this. So. He, yeah, and he told me recently that uh, maybe we met two at a time where he was just hitting a point where he wasn't sure if he wanted to keep 
doing that kind of work as much because mm-hmm. he, he got a bit of fatigue with it. <laughs> I think part of it might have been that he'd done a lot of big projects that he was really proud of, but that then sometimes people weren't using for musical ends, so they became museum pieces or they became display items in his feeling. Yeah. Uh, and that he felt the sort of, I don't know, a lack of inspiration to do that work. Mm-hmm. So many hours by yourself doing all this work to, I guess, give musical possibility to an instrument that then then sits dormant afterwards anyway. <laughs> so I came along saying, you know, I, I really want to, I want to do everything Jean-Jacques Perry's doing on this. Yeah. I don't know if this will ever make a sound again, but what do you think? And he said, he told me recently, he said he just lied to me. He said, yeah, I've seen worse than this. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he's just really thinking, oh my God, this is, this is never going to work. But um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I guess I was patient. I didn't give him any kind of crazy deadline. I just said, yeah. look, I have no idea if this is going to be possible, but if anyone can do it, I've heard you might be able to. <laughs> so um, he started digging and testing and checking. And I already told him that I was digging into the historical document side of it. That I was intending mm-hmm. on translating the manual and hopefully giving us as much insight as we could get into what was going on, the guts of this instrument. Right. So over time, yeah, that, that contributed greatly. He'd got to a point, I think, where he had a lot of basic things calibrated and working. At least because, you know, the schematics are available, at least, you know, yeah. scan of the what's called the full schematic one page, but it doesn't give you anywhere near the, <clears throat> the full story that the actual, you know, right. text in the document elaborates on. Right. The way Stephen put it is once we had that English translation done and he read it for the first time, he just said, there are so many, oh, by the ways, <laughs> that are critical <laughs> to making the instrument work, you know, st- stuff like... Uh, you know, by the way, if you don't exactly match these tubes and have the voltage in this range at 65 volts, then that whole assemblage won't work, yeah. even though you had it working before. You know, so there's always like if yeah. this, then not that, if that, then wow. this type of combinations of circuits. Um, but, you know, so he worked wow. through them and he, he still, I think, found a bunch of um, oddities that didn't even match the manual anywhere. He's like, That's what he ev- said. everything this manual says that this has to, you know, can't run above 170 volts. But this instrument has to run at 190 and everything works. Yeah. So oh, man. The, each one of them is still its own little conundrum. And, right. Know, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're all handmade. And, yeah. and Jenny was obviously really tweaking little things every time. And Stephen's starting right. to see those things instrument to instrument. But even he, I think, can't quite anticipate exactly what that means when he restores this one, like whether that means I'm going to go, oh, the G, the G isn't doing what I needed to do. It's right. like, he's like, right. it looks the same to me as a coil, but, right. <laughs> I you know, so... Man. Yeah, that's still, that's very much an ongoing process of discovering how different even the ones that are the same model from seemingly the same period, how different they can be. Right. <clears throat> that's, yeah. You find that with a lot of older instruments that, that, yeah, sure, they would tweak them along the way, but mm. documentation is scarce. Yeah, certainly not, yeah. not model by model. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. Um, the, and this led to you also meeting John Jacques Perry. Yeah, well, making that archiving. song. Yeah. Them. So this is before I met Stephen, actually. I was still yeah. sort of searching, okay. maybe a bit more casually. I guess I was living in Australia feeling like I'd set myself this album concept that I'm now about three years into trying to finish as an <laughs> album, but yeah. then that has sort of mushroomed into so many um, direct side projects in, in archival and tribute band and you know instrument learning right. directions that it just the whole project has become like, well, um which is which is great but um that's one of the reasons it's obviously taking a lot of time so one of the first things i mean i started to feel like i wasn't able to get at a primary um uh, like distance to things it was you know when you're emailing or you're calling someone saying i live in melbourne maybe i can see you in virginia in six months once i can organize the trip living in new york has made you know a huge change to those things because you know new york is such a magnet for incredible people doing absurd things you meet people with (laughs) similarly you know <clears throat> unusual interests True. and um and it just feels like you know you can fly to europe in half a day 
Yeah. You can go to LA and you're there in a few hours. And, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, when I was still in Australia, I sent a demo of that song to Jean-Jacques and he and his daughter replied very warmly and said, this is just really sweet that you've done this. Um, it's very yeah. unexpected. We didn't know your music, but we've been listening and it's great. And if yeah. you ever want to meet, drop us a line if you're going to be in Europe. Uh, but I said, how about two weeks from now? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, I flew over actually with the intention to see if Jean-Jacques would sing or speak on my track. And we kind of wow. tried, that was our first session. We tried some things where he was like, sort of speak scatting my lyrics and I was going to maybe have him mirror in English and then in French speaking my lyric behind my voice that hasn't ended up working out in the song but so my intention first was wouldn't this be great I'll get to meet a musical hero who's inspired me so much and maybe he can be an actual guest on my tribute song to him thought that sounded beautiful (laughs) Um, but I don't know it's just it just started this this connection that led me back I just felt like I wanted to visit again and they said happy to have you come again and Um, And that just, yeah, that led to just exchanging, you know, more music and Patricia started bringing out test pressings and, you know, you know, things she'd, things that her dad had sent her when she was a girl that she'd kept and she'd never necessarily gone back to her dad and said, remember when you sent me this? But because we're talking so much about me as a fan, like just spending time in his kitchen or his lounge room saying, I was reading in that biography I read online that you'd worked with this guy, but I can't find any music. And he'd start recalling a story and his daughter Patricia would say oh let me she'd go up to her apartment upstairs and come back going yeah remember you sent me this when I was 10 <laughs> and so I just sort of thought what wow. else is hiding here in your in in the cellar and in Patricia's room <laughs> and I just said I mean as a fan can I can I hear any other things you have yeah. um so she she was understandably a little worried at first like saying oh I'm not sure I, I think I can let you take these right but I said but if we if we you know there's no way to hear what's on them or if you know you're maybe only going to make them worse playing them on maybe oh, a, yeah. an average turntable yeah. if you trust me to to do really good work i will do whatever it takes to make sure that this is the best it can be so she she agreed and said okay well I'm giving you part of my life here yeah. giving me you know one of a kind copies of test pressings that oh. from what all of us could tell just that piece of music didn't exist anywhere else right. and so i took them to new york and then did a bunch of looking around and found Chris Muth, mm-hmm. um, who's been doing the vinyl transcriptions for me. Yeah, um, really loved the work he's doing with his setup and felt like he, he knows he knows where he's at. <laughs> <clears throat> he knows a few things. I kind of had tried to set up because I got a great Lin Sondek turntable in Australia and had done a bit of digging into trying to get a really deluxe hi-fi turntable setup. Here I started looking at VPI systems, but I'd had just so many barriers. You know, cause when you're trying to get a good like when you get a getting a transcription turntable set up is a bunch of dialing yeah. and I was trying but I kept feeling like and I did some passes but I thought I wasn't quite getting there so that's when I went to Chris and said I think you can do a better job than I can on this yeah. so I gave those records to him Patricia was really happy with the way things sounded um, and then I thought well we should do some restoration on this since when I went you know I actually <laughs> I tried about seven different restoration engineers I uh, just was disappointed with the results thinking maybe what I'm looking for isn't possible but then I found Jamie Howarth and he right. really blew me away with the first two or three things he worked on. Right. Um, just the, I don't know, the sensitivity and the musicality and being on the same wavelength in terms of going, you know, we're not trying to give this the LA body scrub yeah. restoration <laughs> process and really getting that, yeah. Uh, yeah. looking for that sweet spot between this is an artifact, but how much closer to the original, you know, performance right. can we get? 
like yeah. building a time machine. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's been great. And I don't know, at some point, I mean, I, I wasn't sure it was going to be Onduline focused for, for a while, I guess, as a fan, I was just going, I'm just loving hearing some of these things, these demo versions of tracks I know from later library albums and hearing right. really sprightly early demo arrangements that I think were even cooler than what he eventually put out mm-hmm. and just feeling like, this is just a, a joy as a fan to discover these pockets of a musical hero's yeah. you know, recording career. Have you um, set up like a proper archive now and then are trying to find... Yeah, I've been pretty, pretty systematic about it yeah. now. So, you know, it's it's multiple hard drives backed up between yeah. me in New York and Patricia in Switzerland. Nice. So I always get her doubles and we've got stuff on the cloud as well. Yeah. Um, it led to the point of, you know, contacting um, ex-collaborators of Jean-Jacques. So after I finished this compilation about yeah. the Onduline, I then... The timings lined up, and I went and met the widow of a man named Sam Fidel, who was a jobbing musician in New York for over 50 years, bass player, played on a bunch of CBS sessions, played for every major conductor in New York. Right. Got to know Jean-Jacques, as a lot of people did through Carol Music, just by you know hanging out in the halls of Carol Music, and you're like, who's this crazy Frenchman making wild sounds at the end of the hall? And yeah, saying to him, let's make a library album. And so they made this great album called um, Musique Electronique du Cosmos, which features Chicken on the Rocks, the original wow. version of Chicken on the Rocks. And um, so Sam Fidel passed away in the late 80s, somewhere in the 80s. Um, but his uh, wife, Dorothy, was many years his junior. So she's only now in her 70s. Yeah. Uh, and she said she'd come meet me at the family house in Pennsylvania and we'd look in the attic and we found, this is a great, actually, I, I wish I had my camera guy with yeah. me, but um, we pulled all these boxes of tapes out and I'm looking at hundreds of reels and I said, I'd be happy to archive your late husband's entire archive just in case there are some Jean-Jacques Perry collaborations yeah. I haven't heard on there that can you know, increase his archive and I'll give you your late husband's archive back just part of a deal, just as a freebie. Um, and then we go back into the attic when I'm sort of thinking, wow, nothing clearly here looks like what I was expecting. Um, and we pull out the box, <laughs> had to like crowbar it open, Jimmy's open and whoosh, there's all the Jean-Jacques Sam Fidel collaborations oh with all these great little drawings and cartoons oh and aliens God. and spaceships on it. So I was like, oh my God, here it is. Um, so, you know, right after Jamie had, you know, spent three days restoring the best vinyl version of Chicken on the Rocks I could find, right. I find the master tape. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but you know, this is the nature of these things. So Yeah. Yeah. But so anyway, then I've, I've systematically Jeez. gone and had Steve at the Magic Shop do all those tapes, all the Sam Fidel tapes, all the Jean-Jacques tapes, yeah. all the Harry Chamberlain tapes that, that the family had given me. Although that's mainly really, obviously, um, Marcus Resch in Sweden, who's kind of taken over the Mellotron company from David right. Keane. Right. He has the main archive over the years. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 But, um, yeah. It's so important that this stuff be preserved while it can. And, yeah. you know, I mean, we're. I, Things we're, get scattered so easily. Yeah. We just watched the whole panel about people trying to, you know, archive hip hop mixtapes and archive. That was, that was the panel I was on. Yeah. I know. And it was amazing. <laughs> it's like, and talking about all these different things that are archiving, right? Yeah. And it's like, it's just like, that is so fascinating that, you know, we need to get this stuff backed up. Yeah. And, and, you know, processes in place for yeah and that's the thing so even, even when i guess when you you know go to digitizing these things those processes need to be foolproof enough that that yeah. isn't just yet another generation that gets scattered or lost yeah because i mean I, I guess digital information's kind of more susceptible to corruption over time than these incredible sources that have given us 60 years and can still right. shine potentially the way they did at the time right you wouldn't say that about a corrupted digital archive so. no no yeah but i mean the beginning of that is, is finding the people that might have this sources yeah you know and then finding anyone that knows anything about it and interviewing people and yeah gathering who was i talking to last night it was great um paul who's a mastering engineer for concord music group who was telling me about having 
the original digital recording system. Soundstream? Oh, He's yeah. got a Soundstream system. Yeah. So those early, like the first records that were DDD. Oh, wow. Yeah. They can play Six, them back or anything. 16-bit, 50 kilohertz system. Oh, weird. With <laughs> 16 bits, but with four check bits. So he said right. it sounds really good. It has a reputation for sounding really good. That's a trip. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to check it out. I haven't, haven't. I did go and check out one. There was one jazz record they recorded. It's like the first digitally recorded album. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a trip. I mean, now we're looking, we're not even looking that far back yeah. in these cases, you know. Totally. I mean, people come to me and they go, I've got this dad tape. What, what, what do I do with player. it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. <laughs> Stump it over. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, um, what's up for the future with you? The new album, of course. Yeah. I mean, I hope that, I really do hope that the new album might be, uh, a launching pad for the spirit with which I'm trying to do these other projects, the mm -hmm. archival preservation revival yeah. aspects of the projects. Um, you know, because there's an aspect about it that is about celebrating people, I think, who are maybe less heralded, that maybe mm -hmm. I think deserve a bit more attention um, or pockets of their work deserve more attention than has been given it. Yeah. Um, and if, if my original music can even be just a, a door opener, just a little <laughs> doorstop to kind of let a little light in, yeah. then maybe that will lead to um, the work I want to do actively, yeah. shining a light on those things, you know, because I, I feel like the projects need to have their own integrity in their own space. Sure. But I'm, I'm you know, I'm obviously I'm aware that I potentially have a profile that could introduce people to things they just don't know about. And I know that some of my fans do, do, yeah. do look to me. That's one of the things they like about previous things I've done is like, oh, I, I just never liked any music that was like this, but it introduced me to an instrument I never knew about <laughs> and introduced me to reggae music that I just thought yeah. was stupid before, but now I've really dug in, you know, early dub music because I liked that song State of the Art, which to me is crazy. Is like, you got into early dub because of that, but great. I mean, I'm really happy to hear that. But, so I don't know. I guess I do, in my heart of hearts, yeah. I hope maybe that my Gauthier record can be a uh, start yeah. connecting some threads with the archival things on the Forgotten Futures label. Right. Yeah. I'd but love to see what the future releases of that will be. There's a, yeah, it's a small number. It's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just love that you've, you've taken a successful thing that happened to you and, and put a lot back, though, too. I mean, I think... That's definitely part of it. You know, yeah. putting, you know focusing on, on archival things and the instruments and and looking at the history of, of music technology in a way mm. and stuff, but getting your own inspiration back out of that. Yeah, I feel for, like there's a, I mean, it's, a to, it's a total cycle. Yeah. I think it's a really healthy way instead of, a, it's a, it, in the culture we live in, it's really susceptible for someone to get a lot of fame and then become a little bit self-absorbed or yeah. such. And uh, I mean, I feel like I'm sometimes um, well, on the edge of being self-absorbed, but in, in things that perhaps are very unusual or like <laughs> peculiar to people and part of my motivation must be like maybe if i do really good work then these peculiar aspects of what i'm interested in might be enjoyed by more people well it's like the i peter have Gab more friends it's like the peter gabriel <laughs> no. model you know of like putting putting some energy back into world music like yeah like absolutely he's done, you know and that's that's um you know in a way the great gracious, thing is you, you a don't... gracious way to carry yourself through life Oh, cheers for saying so. <laughs> I think you, you don't know where it can go to, which is exciting mm -hmm. for me. Is if yeah. you're if you'd feel a personal personal passion for something, and you are blessed enough to, to have the time and you know or various resources, whether it's time, finances, um, support, collaborators who yeah. share your enthusiasm, yeah. um, you don't know where it could go, and that's really exciting. I mean, if, you know, if some part of you sort of says, "I wonder if the Onduline could come back to 
well, it's never had prominence, but even just some accessibility <laughs> yeah. to musicians or producers or studios to be used to make new music, then right. and if I could help that along, then that would be amazing. Well, it's Let's very, see it's, what happens. It's very expressive. Yeah. And watching you play it and seeing the keyboard shift back and forth for vibrato and seeing the volume control and the unique filters mm. that you were playing for changing sounds as you were playing a key, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's another way of expressing with a keyboard that... Oh, yeah. It's really know. unlike, I mean... Yeah. It's just a different assemblage of, of yeah expressive mechanics, I think, than anybody. It just feels like it's, it's in this period before, obviously, courtesy of Moog mainly and Buchler and, and people like that, mm -hmm. the more programmatic aspect of electronic music. Like, I mean, the aspect of where people might say that's a synthesizer when voltage control of every parameter from programming through to even performance things at your fingertips. But yeah. it still feels to me like that's still a starting point nothing ill about those people because they mm -hmm. actually were very much about performance and about the possibility of i mean i think about like um what was it ideal knob length ideal knob width <laughs> bob's thoughts about like why yeah. a knob should be this size right right um which is so <laughs> at odds maybe with like euro rack and stuff like that but yeah yeah <laughs> but there's something about that point where i feel like so much in electronic music has become about the programming what can you do that a performer can't do or that this machine you know the aspect of which is obviously fascinating and incredible music has been made following that line. But the ondulingness from this other period where the questions that were being asked more like, why can't this electronic instrument have as much, you know, yeah. human mechanical expressivity as a violin or a saxophone or... Yeah. Um, I was add, thinking saxophone yeah. as you were playing it. I'm like, you're kind of moving your hands about as much as like... Yeah, you know? it's true, actually. It's funny. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for Cheers. doing this with us, man. Oh, That's thanks, amazing. Man. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time.